thank you so much for tuning in to the Defending Christianity podcast. I'm your host, Levi Dade, and in this podcast, we aim to talk about the evidence and reasons for why the Christian faith is true and why it is good. We do this with the hope to encourage the church to engage the culture around us and to be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus as 1 Peter 3.15 commands. Thank you so much for listening. God bless. Doubting in itself isn't wrong, but it's where we take our doubt. Yeah. If we take it to Jesus and let him answer it, and if we're truly seeking truth, I think we're okay. I think once we look the other way or run from God because of our doubt, I think that's where we might end up in some trouble. And, you know, people, some people have doubts based upon whether Christianity is factually true. Mm-hmm. Other people have psychological doubts. That is, they're, maybe they have experiences in life that cause them to not trust authority figures. So yeah. doubts, you know, being a human being, we are limited, we're finite. I don't think that, like you, I don't think doubts are bad, but I think they need to be appropriately addressed. Yeah, there's definitely a way to do it, a healthy way to do it. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned uh, psychological doubts and people's experience of Christians doing very bad things, which leads me to, to we can go ahead and get into the second part, leads us to that part. Let's go with um, so many Christians are unlike Christ. Yeah. So, so we were kind of touching on that just then. So, so when people bring up this objection about, about it, m- many new atheists, as you pointed out earlier, uh, what, what are some, some things that we can keep in mind? I think this is a very important question. Um, I like to talk about uh, hypocrisy. I like to talk about two types of hypocrisy. Uh, one is a lowercase h. The other is what I would call a capital H hypocrisy. Let's deal with the lowercase all Christians are hypocrites if what you mean by that is that none of us completely live up to God's moral perfection. Uh, None of us fulfills the Ten Commandments perfectly. I don't think there's a human being on earth that's ever loved God with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and their neighbor as their self perfectly. Uh, You know, all of us are given over to selfishness. Uh, All of us struggle with envy and pride. Of course, in what's needed in that context is that when we offend people or we uh, engage in sinful behavior, we need repentance, we need confession. It may be we need to be reconciled with other people. You know, if I get into a heated disagreement with my wife, I may have to go to her and say, you know, Joan, I'm sorry. Um, I shouldn't have said that. Well, that's hypocrisy. None of us are perfect. Sanctification, you know, we have been uh, declared forgiven that we call that justification. Mm-hmm. Sanctification is that long moral process where the Holy Spirit is working on us. I know in my life, even though I still sin, I'm not like the person I was 40 years ago. Um, I, I am, I think, much more concerned about living a gracious, uh, kind, loving life. So that's hypocrisy. And of course, I would say non-Christians, they struggle with the same. They get, They struggle with anger and envy and gluttony and greed and lust and pride and sloth. Now, there's another type of hypocrisy that I think is much more serious, and that's with the capital H, and that's when you have Christian people who actually live double lives. Uh, They have a, actually, I think it's a triple life. They have a public life uh, that people see in public. Then they have a private life that maybe only them and their close friends or family see. Then they have a secret life. Well, um, that can get you into real trouble. The more you compartmentalize your, your life, uh, the worse. I mean, we've seen that with Rabbi Zacharias, who was yeah. a remarkable Christian. He thinker. came to mind when you were talking about that too. Yeah. So 
Christians need to be very careful that they don't compartmentalize their life. You want moral integrity to run through. It's true. All of us have a secret life, meaning that there's a part of us that only we know. Then there's a part we only share with family and friends. And then there's our public, where people see us in public. They may watch you on YouTube. Uh, they may read a book. Um, well, I would say in that sense, if you have a if you have a secret life that you live that is uncompatible or incompatible with your Christian profession, then I think we have to wonder whether you're authentically Christian. Now, here's what I really want to say, however. I don't think the truth of Christianity rests on whether Christians themselves are perfect or whether they uh, never have any hypocrisy. I think the real question is, was Jesus a hypocrite? Yeah. And the answer to that is no. I mean, what you see in the New Testament is, I mean, Jesus goes to his family and he says, can any of you point to sin in my life? I mean, try that at Thanksgiving or Christmas <laughs> Day. Tell you, ask your family, can any of you find fault in me? I mean, that I'd get laughed out if I did There will that. be a line across <laughs> the right. state of Mississippi for me. That's, that's, that's exactly right. But, you know, even Pontius Pilate can't find fault with Jesus. Mm. Even the religious leaders, uh, they, uh, you know, they don't like his proclamation but they can't find fault with who he was. And I think that's really the question. I think that Jesus is not a hypocrite. So I might do something to step on your toes. I might do something that you find unacceptable, but I'm confident that if you look at the person of Jesus and you invite him into your life, he will not let you down. He was not a hypocrite. And so the truth of Christianity rests upon his credentials. Now, now again, I think it's important that Christians realize that non-Christians watch us. They observe what we do, and I think we need to put our best foot forward. I think we need to live honest lives when we make mistakes, when we commit errors, when we sin. I think we need to correct those things. And as a Christian thinker, if I say something that's wrong, I will go back and I'll correct it. If I uh, engage in inappropriate behavior or sinful behavior, I will admit it, and I want God's forgiveness to reconcile that. So I think that hypocrisy is a very important element. Um, but I think the real question is, was Jesus a hypocrite? And I don't see any evidence of that. In fact, I see the opposite. I've studied Krishna and Buddha and Confucius and Muhammad. These are the great world's religious leaders. I would say that none of those four can compare with the character that Jesus exhibits in the Gospels. Yeah, that's a good point. It reminded me of, I was interviewing Dr. Alex McFarland last, last year, and we were talking about this and he said something that was that stuck with me ever since he said that uh, the sad thing is that a lost world that ought to have their their eyes on christ too often have their eyes on the christians and that's where where we go wrong. not that christians can just you know do whatever they want and the world should still look look to christ but that they're looking at christians as the evidence for christianity's truthfulness right. and i think that's where where i think uh, the principle of you don't judge a philosophy from its abuse that's right. And, and the Bible teaches that all human beings are fallen. Mm -hmm. All human beings are broken. I mean, that's a biblical teaching. And that's why we need a savior. <laughs> that's why we need a savior. And so, yeah, I'm broken. I'm fallen. I need a savior. And my savior is not broken. He is not fallen. So what about the, the skeptic that hears you out and says, okay, Dr. Samples, but God commanded genocide. Yeah, that's a, that's a challenging question. Um, why would God uh, call Joshua, his general, if you will, uh, to engage in a conquest of 
the Canaanites. Uh, why is there language in the Old Testament where uh, Joshua is commanded by the Lord uh, to kill and destroy the Canaanites? What I do in my chapter is I say, look, there Christian scholars take two views of the Canaanite conquest. Uh, some would say that the goal of the Canaanite conquest was not to murder men, women, and children. That is, it wasn't to annihilate uh, all of the people group known as the Canaanites. It was rather the Canaanite religion engaged in evil practices, ch child sacrifice, uh, public sexuality. Um, the Canaanites were a wicked people. They were engaged in uh, terrible things. Um, the prophets preached to them for 400 years. They wouldn't repent. Um, somebody like Paul Copan in his book argues that the goal was not to destroy all women and children. It was to stop the Canaanite religion. Um, and that, so that would be his perspective. Other people, however, say no. Uh, it was, uh, in effect, uh, a judgment upon the Canaanite people as a whole. Now, I think there's a number of things that need to go into this discussion. One is that God is the creator of all human beings, and therefore all human beings belong to him. He gives life, and he can take life. Mm. Just like if you think of capital punishment, I mean, if you engage in murder, uh, here where I live in the state of California, you can be prosecuted, and the, and the government of the state of California can put you to death if they find you have committed murder. Well, God could bring forth his judgment, but I think what people miss is that the prophets preach to the Canaanites for a long time, and if they're engaged in temple sacrifice, if they're engaged in child sacrifice, if they're engaged with sex with animals, um, if God didn't intervene, a, a skeptic might say, well, where was God? How come God knew of this wickedness and he didn't do anything about it? Yeah. So there are difficulties and challenges uh, with regard to the way that God deals with the nations in the, in the Old Testament. But you know what? If God created all things, and if the universe belongs to him, and if he sets the moral standard, then uh, I view the Canaanite conquest as a judgment of God, just as God brought a judgment on the world at the flood, and just as God will bring judgment in the future. So I don't think that... Uh, the Canaanite conquest is a reason to think that God is somehow unjust. I think mm. that God's justice is, is paramount. Yeah, that's a good point. I did a, uh, a debate with a friend of mine who, who is an atheist at my school, uh, fall of 2021, and in preparation for it, I thought he might bring it up, but he actually didn't about the uh, genocide of the Canaanites. And I point out that it was for Israel's spiritual protection, uh, first of all, because had they not done that and, and they kind of just assimilated with the Canaanites, then, you know, when evil and good mix together, who's going to usually win, which is why we also don't usually wed uh, a Christian and a non-Christian. Uh, the Christian faith kind of prohibits that, you know, don't be unequally yoked. So we get this idea and it was for Israel's spiritual protection, but it, it, it was also uh, not a race thing. It was more of the Canaanites uh, way of life is what God wanted to eradicate. And we know this because uh, of Rahab the prostitute, who was a Canaanite, and uh, she actually, in Joshua 2, becomes an Israelite because she had faith in Yahweh. So it was whether or not they had faith in Yahweh, not whether or not they were a Canaanite by by ethnicity. Uh, and then we have, you know, the worship of Molech and child sacrifices. You mentioned that they were very evil people. Um, and I think you make a critical point there, too, and, and yeah. that is 
you know, the Israelites were the one which would bring forth the Messiah, and the Israelites needed to be protected from the moral contamination of a of a of an evil uh, culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's a that's a critical critical idea. So, it's yeah, a, um, a challenging topic, but not is. one without answers from the Christian point of point it of is. And I also wanted to point out that you know we we don't see God's God's patience there. You mentioned that they were you know doing these horrible things for over four hundred years. In Genesis 15, when he's talking to Abraham about the land he's going to give him, he says that you can't enter it now because the iniquities of the Canaanites have not been fulfilled. He says, I'm going to give them more time. Yeah. And I think that, that that just shows some grace because God isn't obligated to give us any time. Yes. But he gives these very wicked people 400 years. And it, and now people are complaining whenever he finally goes in and stops the evil that, that they've done. I think it's very interesting. And it just shows the, uh, the love and grace of, of God. Yes, I mean we, and even if now again, if if the Israelites simply engaged in killing of the Canaanite men to stop the Canaanite religion, the more complicated issue is if Joshua's troops killed women and children. That would be the killing of non-combatants. Yeah, but even there, uh, God may have mercy on those children. If they grew up, they would undoubtedly have been contaminated and would have suffered God's wrath. So there is a way of reasoning through it. I mean, war is always difficult. It is always challenging. But um, I think we have to accept the idea that God is completely just. And there are times we'll see his wrath because of uh, injustice and sinfulness. Yeah, so we have about 15, 20 minutes. I want to go through maybe one or two more if, if that's sure. okay. Let, let's, let's just go with uh, can Christianity make sense of longing and suffering? Uh, because that that's a pretty deep and emotional issue. And, and when we're talking about, especially with skeptics, things that are more emotional than just rational, it, it's really hard to, to work through those because of the emotions that arise from them. So how do you go about dealing with that? Yeah, that's the final chapter of my book, and I, I specifically deal with it last because I believe, I, I know when I was uh, a teenager, uh, I felt restless. I was searching. I was looking. Um, I had kind of grown up in a nominal Catholic family, but I'd never taken Christianity seriously. And I realized that uh, there was something missing in my life. Now, I thought at the time, well, maybe if I meet the right woman, maybe that will satisfy the longing that I have, uh, maybe get married, have a family. Or I thought uh, in those days, I, I hoped to be a professional baseball player. I thought, well, if I became a, a major league player, I would have fame and money and success. You should have picked soccer. I should have picked soccer, <laughs> which is a world sport, right? Yes, sir. That's the world sport. Well, um, I thought to myself, you know, why do I have this longing in my life? Why do I have, I mean, I, I have a good family, but there was something missing. And, and uh, you know what? I think if you went back and talked to my family and my friends, I think they would have told you that, that Ken was searching. He was looking. Well, what is this longing? I mean, the the rock and roll groups I used to listen to, they would talk about that. I remember Mick Jagger, I can't get no satisfaction. You know, you too, I, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I think human beings have a sense of longing. I think uh, St. Augustine says, Lord, you've made us for yourself and our hearts find no peace until we rest in you. C.S. Lewis, of course, picks this up and he says he, he engages in, in an analogy. He says, you know, when you're hungry, 
Uh, well, there is an objective reality that can satisfy hunger. We call that food. If you're thirsty, if you have a yearning for thirst, well, there, there's water that can satisfy that. Human beings have sexual desires. Well, there is sex and marriage that can be fulfilling to that. But Lewis then says, I have a yearning to live forever. I have a, I have a yearning for something eternal. And then he argues that uh, given, on, given based upon his argument desire, maybe I was made for another world. And I think that this topic is a very important one because I think that when a person, even if you're not a Christian, I think if you think carefully about your life, I don't think that money or sex or fame can really satisfy you. I mean, I've been reading my whole life about, you know, famous athletes and famous rock stars and famous actors who've made lots of money, who have engaged in all kinds of pleasurable activities. And yet they're not satisfied. They're not fulfilled. Um, and thus this argument is that from a Christian point of view, human beings were made to know God, to love God, to serve God. But our fallen condition has cut us off from that. Therefore, if you try to fill that hole within you with mm. the accumulation of wealth or with many sexual experiences or with popularity, none of that's going to be, none of that's going to be fulfilling. And I've experienced that. I've seen it in the lives of many other people, mm -hmm. um, and I think Christianity has an explanation for that that I think the other philosophies and world religions don't. And so it's kind of an existential argument. It is an argument from our experiences in life, and it certainly, um, it certainly speaks to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so do you think that that's what that scripture uh, is talking about, the one that says that God has set eternity in the hearts of man? I think so. And, and you know, there, one of my favorite passages is Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest for your souls. I mean, that, again, I've spent a good part of my life trying to study the other world's religions, and I can tell you, Buddha doesn't say that, and Muhammad doesn't say it, neither does Confucius or Krishna. It seems that Jesus comes to us and he says that your condition, being fallen, being people who are sinful, uh, life has worn you down. You, have, you, you don't have peace. You don't have rest. And Jesus says, to come into a relationship with me, I will give you what your soul is seeking. And, you know, a couple of years ago, I walked into a Catholic hospital, St. Jude here in Southern California. I was visiting a friend who, was, who was, uh, had an illness. And in the lobby, written in large letters, was Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus is the great physician. You can think of salvation in this way. We are all very sick, and Jesus has the medicine. Jesus is the cure of our brokenness, our sinfulness, our fallenness. And you know what? A lot of times when I talk with people about faith, it's that argument. They realize, wow, I, you're right. I am, I am looking. I am searching. It, it isn't necessarily my Kalam cosmological argument or yeah. my arguments of prophecy that are fulfilled. A lot of times I, I speak to people's brokenness. And think about the pandemic. Mm -hmm. You know, at, at the beginning of the pandemic, there were in America, there were about one in five Americans looking for some kind of counseling or therapy to help them with their mental health issues. 
I read later that it's now 40 percent. Uh, people, you know, during the time of a pandemic, you're locked down. You're you have to, you know, you can't go out and go to a ball game. You can't go out and go shopping or have fun. You have to kind of look in the mirror and face your context. I think that this is a very powerful thing that if you invite Jesus Christ into your life as your Lord and Savior, if you come into a relationship with him, you can experience a fulfillment and that there is a lessening of that longing. So mm-hmm. I, I close my book with that, and that's a topic I return to often with people. Good. Yeah, it, it is a very, very powerful and impactful argument. I could see how someone might push back on you and sure. say something to the extent of uh, uh, apologists many times and very often say something to the extent of you can't base your beliefs based off of what you want to be true. Um, but this argument seems to be doing the same thing. It's from desire, what you want to be true. So, so how, how would you kind of uh, answer that, that, that response? Well, I, I think that almost any argument can be challenged. What, what I would say about this is that if God does exist, and if the Bible is correct in the way that it has described the human condition, then we should expect to see that there will be, when you encounter God, there will be a fulfillment and a satisfaction. Mm-hmm. So it's true. I mean, somebody might become a Buddhist and say, well, Buddhism has changed my life. Or somebody might become a Scientologist and say, well, that, that changed my life. But I don't think that gets us out of the context that human beings seem to be broken. They seem to be lost. That's a biblical theme. And when we experience God, he begins to satisfy us and fulfill us and and change us. Now, I wouldn't use that argument all by itself. I wouldn't use that as a sole argument independent of other arguments. But in light of the other apologetic arguments we can bring to bear, I think we can expect that that Jesus can change our life. Yeah, it does contribute to the cumulative case. Yes, right. Approach, which is one that that I value and and try to... um, Reasoning to the best explanation. Yes, yeah. So it's not just one piece of... One one argument in itself doesn't prove God, but when you look at the cosmological, the teleological argument that the earth is fine-tuned and the universe is fine-tuned, the moral argument that there's objective moral values and thus there must be an objective moral lawmaker... Uh, and then you add this one on top of it and the arguments for the resurrection. I mean, that, that by itself is a pretty strong case. Yes. <clears throat> and again, if the Lord created us and if he knows us, then we should expect that we will have an experience of him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when you start talking about aloneness, when you start talking about loneliness, when you start talking about life not being fulfilling— I remember at one point in the pandemic, there were more suicides in Japan than there were deaths from COVID. So wow. human beings, human beings struggle. Yeah. Jesus says, if you struggle, if life has beat you up, if you uh, are burdened, come to me and I will give you rest and peace. And I, I, uh, I've experienced that. Comforting. Uh, so one final thing to the, the Christian who's struggling with their faith or to the skeptic who is seeking truth and they're listening to this, they still aren't sure, but but they're considering it. Any advice for them going forward? Yes. You know, um, some Christians who have, uh, who have come to the Christian faith, uh, two of my favorite thinkers are uh, Augustine and C.S. Lewis. 
I write about them in, in my book, Classic Christian Thinkers. Both Augustine and Lewis uh, fell away from their faith. Their mothers taught them Christianity at a very early age. They went into a, a life where they were pursuing fulfillment, uh, either in their career uh, or through, you know, secular ideas. Um, and what we see in the life of Augustine and Lewis is that two things tend to make a big difference. They encounter Christian people with, you know, with Lewis, it's people like Tolkien and the other members of the Inklings. For Augustine, it's Bishop Ambrose. So when we're talking to people that are looking at the Christian message or considering the Christian message or even have doubts about the Christian message, um, talking with other people about it is very important. But I would also make this point that Augustine and Lewis, it was reading of particular books. They were both very bookish people. Um, I think if we can recommend good sources for people to read, uh, people that they can talk to, whether you're an atheist or whether you're a Christian, but you feel like you need to, you know, your spiritual condition needs to be improved. There's some really good books out there to read. There are opportunities to talk to Christian people who can help you, can pray with you, can encourage you. And I think both of those are very much needed when people are looking uh, I know for me, the very first Christian book I ever read was Mere Christianity, and um, I just devoured it. I thought, wow, this is a little book, but it's so deep and profound. So I think ministries like yours, people like you, uh, you're a young man. There are a lot of young people out there who are looking for answers. Uh, they can watch your program. Uh, go to the Reasons to Believe website if your problem is science. We have a lot of articles and books. If your problem is philosophy or the world's religions, we got lots of books and articles. Um, and if your problem is that you're struggling in life, you could talk with a pastor. You can talk with other Christian people who can help you and encourage you. So those, I think, are sources that can can make a difference in people's lives. Yeah, and I'll, I'll be leaving uh, links for the reasons to believe website in the description below for anybody listening or watching and want to check it out you mentioned reading uh good books uh for those who may be wanting to look further and i will first recommend christianity cross-examined by the great dr ken samples uh dr samples thank you so much for being on the show today well thank Go you ahead. and uh, i want to encourage you to keep going keep doing what you're doing you're making a real difference and uh you're very gracious to have me on and i appreciate it anytime so thank you for for coming on it means a lot Thank you so much for joining us today on Defending Christianity Podcast. I hope and pray that you were encouraged and strengthened in your faith. And if you're someone who's seeking truth, I hope and pray that you have gotten closer to that because Jesus is the truth. Join us next time on the Defending Christianity Podcast. God bless.